I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. I want you to think about last Sunday, and uh, this will be hard if you weren't here or you didn't see it online, but for those of you who were here and were maybe watching online, I want to ask you to um, try and recall everything that you can remember about the service in your mind. Can you remember maybe one of the songs that we sang? Can you remember any of the the content of the sermon? Please say yes. Can you remember maybe who you sat next to or any of the conversations that you had with anyone last Sunday? I don't know how much you can recall. Maybe some of you can recall a little. Maybe some of you have a great sense of recall and you can recall a lot. Had we been in the synagogue some 2,000 years ago on that Sabbath day when Jesus entered and taught and then healed a man of his, his affliction, cast a demon out, we would, I think, recall just about every detail of that service. As Jesus taught that day, everyone was amazed by his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. It wasn't just the message that he was teaching that was so compelling. It was. But it was the messenger. Both what Jesus said and who he was, there was this congruity, there was this integrity, this consistency between the the man and the, the message, so much so that everyone was amazed. And then that all got even more amplified when this man who was in the synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, approached Jesus. And I don't know whether this was a common thing in the synagogue. I have to think it wasn't very common. This didn't happen regularly. This man approached Jesus, and the evil spirit spoke out of the man to Jesus, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What the people were witnessing in the the Sabbath that day was the frontline battle between this, this invasion of the kingdom of heaven coming down to the kingdom of earth. They had a front row seat to this battle. I have to believe that after the worship service that day, the grapevine in Capernaum was electric. I mean, there wasn't a person in this community that didn't hear about what happened at worship that morning. And I also believe that the grapevine in the spiritual realm was electric. The demons were on on guard. They were on on high alert. Jesus had come, and clearly he was here to to do business. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. We're doing a series through the Gospel of Mark this morning. But as we do, uh, join me as we come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word that you have uh, had recorded and handed down to us uh, for our benefit today. Lord, your word is living and active, and so we pray that it would enter into our hearts and our minds and it would minister to us where where we have need. Uh, Come, Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you're following along, it's Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 29. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, so we're picking up right after the service, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So in between the event of Jesus going to the, the synagogue, teaching, casting out this evil spirit, And what would happen later, many people coming for healing and and more exorcisms in between these two events, events, Mark gives us a three-sentence account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. It's hardly a footnote in Mark's gospel, but I don't think we can overestimate how important this was to Peter and to his wife and to their family. When Jesus came and asked Peter and Andrew and James and John to leave their nets and follow him, we've got to remember that these were real people just like us. Place yourself in their shoes. And Jesus comes to you and and says to you, leave whatever it is that you need to leave to follow me. This is not an easy decision. These are real sacrifices that that these men were being asked to make. And what we learn is that Peter, he's he's married and he's got a mother-in-law who lives with him and she's not well. She's really sick and this is weighing on him. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law reveals to us that yes, Jesus asks a lot. The cost to follow is great, but he also loves a lot. Jesus is not unaware, God is not unaware of the the costs that any of us would would make in following him. There is a cost, and he's aware of it. He's not trying to squeeze out every little bit of, of life out of us to see what he can get from us. This three sentence event was a scene that the producers of The Chosen decided to include in their series and elaborate on, and it just so happens that our small groups are, are discussing this episode tonight, which is a great time to put in a plug. If anyone wants to join a small group, we can make that happen. Uh, but I want to show you this scene. I think you'll enjoy it. <coughs> oh, where is Simon? Can he build us a fire? He's away. <laughs> Fishing? No, something else. <laughs> Lie still. Lie still. <laughs> Eden. Jesus. I wasn't expecting you here. People usually aren't. Can I get you something warm to drink? I was just stoking the fire. You saw it first, you know. What do you mean? 
what I see in Simon. You were the first person to notice when no one else did. That connects us. My mother said I was drawn to his wildness and that I would regret it. <laughs> I wonder what she will say now. We're uh, going into town to sell these nets. We'll be right back. Stay here a moment, Simon. I just want to leave some extra money behind for Eden and Nemo while I'm away. Put your nets down and go sit with your mother-in-law. <coughs> Simon to make sacrifices and leave things behind in order to follow me. You are one flesh with Simon. He cannot make sacrifices that are not also yours. You have a role to play in all of this. Do I? You will know in time. I can't make everything about this easier for you wouldn't be our people's way. <laughs> no, it has not been. Nor will it continue to be. But I see you. You understand? I know it is not easy to be at home when your husband is out doing all of this even when you are excited about it and proud of him. So, I wouldn't ask you to do this without taking care of a few things. You mean? Plus, normal Simon is difficult enough. You think I want to travel with a worried Simon? respect. Her forehead burns my hand to the touch. We should get a doctor. There is no need. This is Jesus of Nazareth. You've never met him before. Welcome to my son-in-law's home. Thank you. What am I doing lying here? You had a terrible fever. And all of you staring down. Dasha, don't... No one move. I'll be right back with some drinks. And here, here, and cast off this fire. 
Coming. Yes, I love goat cheese. I should yeah, see about the um, goat cheese. <laughs> Thank you. Me? For what? For obeying and following him. So Jesus came to the disciples and said, leave your nets behind, leave your families behind, and follow me. And there was a cost to that. And when we look at the scriptures, what we don't see is Jesus playing the role of a sneaky salesman, of someone who buries the cost of following him in kind of the fine print only to spring it upon them later. Jesus is very clear. Listen to some of the things that he says. I remember the first time I heard this verse from Luke and thought, man, that's asking an awful lot. If anyone is not willing to give up everything, everything he has, he cannot be my disciple Later, he would say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. We never see Jesus withholding the cost, minimizing the cost, burying the cost in the fine print. For centuries, God's people have always known, they've always understood that there is a cost that comes with following Jesus. Think about the first recipients of this gospel. Mark was writing this to the Christians who were in Rome. These are people who every day are facing very real costs. They're being persecuted. They're they're even being martyred. Nobody is buying their goods because they're, they're Christians and they don't want to do business with them. And yet they're coming to Christ. The church is growing like crazy under those conditions. They know that there's a cost. Christianity is not a path to a life of ease and convenience. need to say that again. Christianity is not a path to, to the easy life. One of the temptations that faces us, I know I feel it, maybe you feel it, is the temptation to minimize the cost. Maybe it's because we, we want to attract people. I want to make Christianity look as appealing as possible. We want to make the, the invitation appealing Maybe, to say it really crudely, we want to make the sale. And so it's tempting to downplay the cost. 
Added to that, we live at a time where people are increasingly reluctant to make commitments. To make commitments, especially to anything that, that carries a cost with it. And so this temptation to reduce the, the cost, to minimize it, is great, but there, there comes a problem with that. The problem in downplaying the cost is that it, it leads to a distortion of the gospel. It leads to a distortion of who Jesus really is, and it makes us soft, that we're not equipped for when the times get hard, if we've been told that this is just going to be easy. By downplaying the cost, we create a Jesus who comes to the shore and says, follow me, but don't worry, you don't need to leave the nets behind. Follow me, but make sure I won't interrupt your life too much. Follow me, I won't interrupt your family life. I won't get in the way of your career ambitions. I won't influence how you you spend your money or what you do with your time. That might sound appealing, but it's not the real Jesus. If you're looking for a religion or a faith that does not require any sacrifice, you're going to have to find one that doesn't have a cross as its central symbol. God's grace is free. There's nothing that we can do to to purchase it or earn it. He loves us unconditionally. It's freely given. But his call to follow him is not theoretical. It's not something that, that we just talk about and then we leave and do what we want to do. His call to follow him is real and it impacts every single decision that we're called to make which is why I love this three-sentence story that has been included in this gospel. It reveals while, yes, there is a cost, Jesus is not oblivious to our concerns. He's not oblivious to what weighs on us. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's not the heavy-handed taskmaster. So we continue reading. That evening... After sunset, the people brought brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So let's just review the day. It's been a long day. That morning, Jesus was at the, the synagogue. And he was teaching, and he cast out the, the demon. That afternoon, he went to Peter's house. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Word quickly spread throughout all of Capernaum, so much so that now the whole town is gathered at the door of Peter's house. And they've come with expectation. They've come for their healing. Anyone with any kind of malady, anyone with any kind of sickness, any kind of sorrow, any anguish, any spiritual torment of the soul, they have come expectantly to the one who they've heard can heal with just a few words. Imagine the scene with me. They're all there, the the crowd is gathered, and the fortunate people that are at the front of the crowd, they're getting healed. I mean, people are watching this happen, they're coming, and they're coming with a limp, and they're walking away healed. 
They're coming not able to see, and they're walking away able to see. And for the people in the back of the crowd who also have their own maladies, I mean, they're excited to think, I'm going to get healed, and I think they're anxious. Like, I need to get to the front of the line before this ends. I've got to, got to have my turn to stand face to face with Jesus. And so one by one, people are, are getting healed. Eventually, the sun sets, and light gives way to darkness. And the people are becoming more anxious, the ones that have not yet had their chance to, to meet Jesus. So it's this strange mix of uh, excitement and, and people just rejoicing at their healing and this, this feeling of anxiety, like, I've got to get to the front of the line. And then it happens. Eventually, Jesus and his disciples hang the clothes sign on the door of the house. That's it for tonight. We've got to call it. God bless you all. And so there's so many people that are leaving ecstatic, and there's some people who are leaving anxious, and you know what they're doing. Immediately, they're making plans. How can we be the first ones here in the morning. This summer, Karen and I were blessed to spend our 25th anniversary in Hawaii, and we were at this hotel where um, they had lawn chairs down on the beach, and we learned after the first day, the second day, that it was really important to get your, your chair, because if you didn't, there was literally nowhere for you to sit on the beach. And we went down, and, and oh, sorry, they're all checked out, and so we made our plans. We are going to be the first ones in line. It opens at 7 a.m. They start taking reservations at 6 a.m. We were down there on the beach in line, and we were not the first people in line. There are five or six people who had gotten there even before six. Why? To get a chair on the beach. Now, if we're strategizing for a chair, think about the people who are blind or the people who have been living with just incredible illnesses and, and, and torment, you know that they are planning, how are we going to get back here so that we are going to be the first person in line? So it was a long day. Finally, they call it a day. Everyone drifts off to sleep. Peter, Andrew, Jesus, healed mother-in-law. James and John probably have gone back to their own home and no sooner do they close their eyes than the sun is risen and it's a new day and they're opening their eyes. My guess is that Peter's mother-in-law is the first one up. You know, she is freshly healed. She's feeling good. She has company. She's making a killer breakfast for everyone. And so she's in the kitchen and she's, she's making food and the smell of that food is wafting through the house and one by one everyone starts waking up. Peter and Andrew and Eden and James and John arrive at the door and, and they all gather together around the table and two observations are quickly made. One, Jesus is missing. Jesus is gone. Like, where did he go? And the second, there is this crowd outside the door that's already gathered. You think about this is the first independent decision that the disciples, apart from Jesus, have had to make. What do we do? 
There's people who have come who are standing outside of our house. They have an expectation to be ministered to. Jesus isn't here. What do we do? Do we try and minister to them ourselves? Heck no, we don't. We're not going to do that. We need to go find Jesus. But where is he? Verse 35. Very early, very, 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 very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. What are you doing, Jesus? Why, why are you wasting your time here by yourself when there's all of these people who, who are at the house and they need you? The sun hadn't yet risen. The line of people hadn't yet formed, but Jesus woke himself up. Before the day started, before any of the demands of the day, before any decisions had to be made, before any spiritual battles had to be fought, Jesus chose to spend this quiet time by himself with his Father. The disciples found him, and struggled to understand what he was doing. It doesn't make sense. Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing here? Is this really the best use of your time? We're on a roll. Yesterday was incredible. And the crowds are back for more. Let's keep the momentum going. What do you say we go back to the house so that you can do your thing? A couple weeks ago, I was in a, a gathering of pastors that were doing a book study together, and, and we're just checking in with each other. And one of the pastors asked me, uh, how long have you been at, at Crossview? I said, I'm almost 17 years. And then another one asked me, well, what have you learned? It was a loaded question. And what would you do differently if you were to start over again? I struggled with those questions and really didn't know what to say throughout some things that probably came more out of my sense of guilt. I'd visit more. But I thought a lot about it since then. And I do have an answer. If I had the opportunity to go back and do it over again, and we're not done, so I do have the opportunity to make a change, I think the thing that I've learned is how important prayer is. How important this isolated one-on-one -on -one time with God is and how easy it is to, to do ministry and to do life apart from that. Prayer is the thing that nobody sees. Prayer is the thing that's done quietly. It's done discreetly. It's also the thing that's most easily discarded without any immediate consequence. My guess, if I showed up this morning and, and next Sunday morning without a sermon, there'd be problems. The personnel committee might be talking to me. If I came to some meetings without an agenda prepared, if I skipped some commitments that I'd made, there'd be problems. 
But if I neglect my relationship with God, who's going to know? Initially, who's going to know? Ralph's laughing because God's going to know. That's what's going on in his head, I, I know. As I work through my, my work week, I have a to-do list. I love checking the things off my to-do list. The to-do list usually starts with about eight things. At the end of the week, it's around 12 things. One of the things that I never put on my, my to-do list is, is pray. Like, just carve out uh, this time every day to, to pray. And I feel the conviction of that. It's not that I don't pray. I have an ongoing conversation with God all day long. But, but this is that, that special, devoted time just to stop everything and, and pray. I think if, if Jesus kept a to-do list, and I'm sure he didn't, but if he had a to-do list and we could peek at it, you know what would be the number one thing? Maybe it would be the only thing on his to-do list. Spend time with the Father. Like this intentional time with the Father. For Jesus, this wasn't a task to check off. Oh, I did it. This was a lifeline. This is what what kept him going. Later, he would say to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's exactly what prayer was for him. It was him staying connected to the vine, staying connected to his Father. His way of receiving the strength that he needed, the guidance that he needed, his way of of expressing love and gratitude to God for the good days, for the bad days. Everything he did from sunup to sundown is rooted, was rooted in this quiet time spent with the Father before the day started. And the disciples didn't get it. With so many other pressing things to do, with people clamoring for your attention, with so many good things to do, how do you justify this solitary time with God? Which, of course, Jesus would flip. With so many important things to do, with so much clamoring for our attention, with so many battles to be fought, so many temptations to be resisted, so much on the line, how can we possibly go into our day apart from spending this time with God in prayer? As I worked on this message this week, friends, I I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit I need to spend this daily time in prayer because there is so much on the line. Everyone's looking for you, they said. Listen to what Jesus said. Let's go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come wait, you mean all those people back at the house, we're not going to go back and minister to them? Those people who didn't get to see you last night, that they didn't get their miracle, they didn't get their healing, we're going to just leave them there? Are you serious, Jesus? We're going to go to the next town? 
Jesus' ministry had only just begun, and already people had expectations of him, expectations of what he would do, when he would do, how he would do it, and he was letting them down. When we're spirit-led, when we spend time with the Father, one of the things that it does is, is God guides us. And it may mean that we're not going to meet the expectations of people. There's endless good things to do. Our problem is not that there's not enough things for us to do. The list of things that we could be doing is endless. And so we need to be in, in touch with God. We need to be in touch with the Spirit. What are you calling me to do? You see, Jesus knew his mission. And it was larger than just healing people from their sickness. Think about this. Every, and I'm going to close with this. Every single person that he healed that day before and every person that he didn't heal, they're all going to die. The ones that got healed from their sickness, the ones that didn't get healed from their sickness, they're all going to die. Jesus' mission was about eternity. His mission was to provide healing of the eternal nature. He was clear what he was called to do. Friends, we need to be meeting with God daily. We need to be meeting with God together as a church so that we can, can hear his spirit clearly, so that we're not spinning our wheels doing good things, but the things that he hasn't called us to. May we start today. Start tomorrow. Join me as we pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and, and cuts to the heart. And Lord, you've cut me to the heart. And, and I pray that um, you would be cutting others as well. Um, Lord, to heal us, uh, to draw us back to you. Lord, help us be about the things that you've called us to, to be about, even if it means that we're going to let some people down and, and not meet their expectations. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.